We have just released issue 4 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is science and the afterlife. And my guest is Oliver Lazar, who received his doctorate in the natural sciences of medicine. Since 2012, he has been a professor of computer science in Dusseldorf at Germany's largest private university. After the accidental, tragic death of a classmate of his then 13-year-old daughter in 2017, he underwent a life change combined with a profound personal spiritual experience, and as a result, he conducted the EREMS study, empirical research of the effectiveness and authenticity of messages from spirit. If you haven't seen our previous interview on afterlife research, I'm linking to it right now in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. It's well worth viewing. He is the author of Beyond Matter, The Moving Experiences of a Scientist with the Spiritual World and His Afterlife Research. Oliver is based in Essen, Germany. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Oliver. It's a pleasure to be back with you once again. Hello, Jeff. Thanks for having me. In our previous interview, we talked a lot about your personal spiritual awakening. It was a very powerful experience. It seems to have totally transformed your life and resulted in a research project about which we spoke in some detail in our first interview. Today, we're going to look at scientific theory and how it applies to the afterlife. And I suppose from your point of view, it would seem as if uh, you're suggesting that the conventional materialistic viewpoint of science is incompatible with the findings that there is an afterlife. Am I correct in uh, that assumption? Yes, that's correct. And the idea was to deal with these topics because uh, I wanted to convince morning people that life still goes on, even when our body has uh, passed away. So the idea was to convince especially people here in our Western civilization who are stuck in a materialistic worldview. But I think my Erium study that we were talking about in the last video for itself would not have been strong enough to convince a skeptic person. I mean, I didn't want to, to uh, persuade every skeptic person, but especially those who are in a deep grief. And uh, the idea was, okay, now I have to take a look 
at, uh, at science, because science is a very good alternative. And I am a scientist. I've studied medicine. I, I know about biology. I know about a biogenesis. How did life begin? The origin of life. I know about evolution. I know about matter. I mean, everything we learn at our schools, at colleges, universities, and what we see on national television is that everything is based upon matter. So everything we are, when I take a look at my own body, I can see it is solid. I have a physical body. So everything we are, but everything that we feel, our love, for example, is based upon material processes or electrophysiological processes. And so we have good answers. So we have a good alternative. Why should someone believe in something like a soul or something like uh, spiritual realms or spiritual world or why should we believe in a god when we have a good alternative and when we take a closer look to what matter actually is or what it is uh, when we are talking about a biogenesis or darwin's theory evolution i have found a lot of insurmountable hurdles and when we understand that all these theories stand on a very shaky ground, then we might open up for other re realities. And this was the idea why I uh, dealt uh, with these topics. I do know that there are some materialists who actually accept the possibility of an afterlife and believe that it could be compatible with material science as we know it if you only assume, for example, that there are more dimensions to space than the three that we experience through our senses. Yes, that's true. I mean, um, there might be things in our universe that we are not able to understand or we are not able to measure. So why do we always think uh, only what we can see with our own eyes is uh, existent? So there might be, of course, other dimensions. And I think more and more scientists are opening up to these ideas. Because I, after I have published my book here, which was very successful here in German-speaking market, I have received a lot of feedback, especially from scientists, from biologists, geologists. And I would say that about 95% of the scientists uh, agreed and said, yes, that's true. And there, there are other dimensions and there are things that we cannot explain with, with our models. Um, but of course, uh, the majority still is a very a skeptic and, and stuck in a materialistic worldview, I would say. Well, one of the things you point out is even if you are a materialist, you would have to admit we don't know what matter actually is. There, there's no scientific explanation, to my knowledge, for the ultimate nature of matter. In fact, philosophers like Immanuel Kant have even gone so far as to say we can never know. I think matter is a good starting point, and it also was a starting point in my book, the title is Beyond Matter. So what is matter? And I thought it's a good starting point. And I would take a look at my own body and I zoom in just as on, on your mobile or cell phone, just zoom in, zoom in. And what will you find at some, at some point you reach the level of our molecules and atoms. And uh, what is an atom? We have an atomic shell. And let's go inside of, of an atom. What do we find? We find a lot of nothing. 
and some electrons. And in the center, there's a very tiny nucleus. Just to get an idea of the, the dimensions, um, you could imagine that the atom has the size of a football stadium and the nucleus would be as big as a rice corn in the middle of the field so that you get an idea of the dimensions. And all of the mass has to be in the nucleus. So there must be the solid uh, matter. Let's take a look at the nucleus. What is the nucleus? There we find uh, the neutrons and the protons. And what are the neutrons and the protons? When we take a look at the on the inside of uh, these particles, we find the smallest known particles, the up and the down quarks. For example, in the proton, we have two up quarks, one down quark, which are the elementary particles, and they are stuck together with the so-called gluons. So what would we expect that all of the mass that we have in our atoms has to be found in these elementary particles? But just a few years ago, it was the British scientist Peter Higgs who has uh, found evidence in the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, the particle accelerator, that there is something like a force field in our universe, the so-called Higgs field, named after him. And we do not have a source for this field, so this energy field, this, this force, is everywhere in the universe. And the interaction between this force field and the elementary particles leads to only one conclusion, namely these particles have to be massless. But where does the mass come from? So here com comes Einstein's formula, you know, E equals uh, mc uh, squared, I hope I have pronounced it correctly in English, um, which says there is an equivalence uh, between mass and energy. So all the mass comes from kinetic and binding energy. And I think it's a, a wonderful image when we think of our own body that we are 100% energy. Very often esotericists say we are pure energy, but they are right. <laughs> it's physically proven. We are 100% energy. And I think this is really a good starting point because when we know that we are not this solid body, that we are just energy, we are just some kind of an oscillation pattern or something like that, then you might open up for other ideas, for other dimensions. So this is why I think matter is really a very good starting point to discuss all the conventional theories. When you say we are energy, I suppose it boils down to, depending on your theoretical orientation, to some sort of vibration. It's not that kind of energy that you could measure in, in a socket or, um, or any, some kind of voltage or something like that. I think it's some kind of an unknown energy, especially when we are talking about spiritual realms. I think there might be other forms of energy that we do not have a clue of. If I understand what you're saying, the mass, what appears to be mass, solid uh, particles that our body is composed of, 
Those particles are uh, equivalent to energy. Einstein's formula suggests that mass and energy are uh, interchangeable and, and that even a tiny little bit of mass pr can produce an enormous amount of energy. That's how we have atomic bombs, for e example. The, the amount of energy is just vast, but then you're suggesting Above and beyond that, our identity as spiritual beings may be uh, a form of energy that's still unknown, just as we only recently discovered the Higgs field. Yes, and I think there are several kinds of energies and somehow they seem to interact. Maybe this is just some kind of an illusion when we see our solid bodies. Uh, so we really we have space and time and we have uh, um, physical laws that's true but when you when we take a look at ourselves in the tiniest so when we we're taking a look on on a quantum level there's just energy and i think this opens up to to uh, a lot of new ideas and and uh, i think very skeptic persons might now open up to other realities and and uh, uh, would say, yeah, maybe there is another reality. There might be dimensions with some kinds of energy that interact with us. I have interviewed some philosophers of physics who suggest that it, at the basis of quantum physics is, isn't even energy. I think they refer to it as uh, the quantum foam is sort of a probability cloud. Well, I'm not a physicist. I think uh, the person you have been talking with is... Uh, uh, knows much more about this topic. Um, the only thing that I was thinking of when we're talking about quantum physics is um, the quantum eraser, which is an experiment that shows that there are realities without space and time. This is what I have written in my book, what I think is the most important thing when we're talking about quantum physics. But as I said, I'm not a physicist, but I think this is very important because uh, this is what I experience for myself when I'm in contact with the spiritual world. I feel that there is no space and no time. And with quantum mechanics, we can really find evidence for that, um, that uh, uh, we really have a reality without space and time. For example, when we uh, have to deal with entangled photons, then we can, can these, see these effects. It's very interesting that you talk about entanglement. I remember my days as a graduate student in, in Berkeley. At that time, I knew a fellow named John Clauser, who uh, just received the Nobel Prize last year for his work on quantum entanglement. And indeed, it shows that particles they could be on opposite sides of the universe, and yet they're intimately connected with each other as if time and space simply don't matter at all. Yes, that's exactly what Einstein uh, said is very spooky. He said a spooky remote effect. Is, uh, and it's uh, very interesting. When you have one photon, you send it into a, a nonlinear crystal, and you have two photons, and they are entangled. And as you said, the, one photon could be on Earth, the other one on the in the Andromeda galaxy. And when you, um, for example, determine the polarization in, in one photon, it, at the same time, so instantly, the same um, uh, polarization manifests in the other photon, which shows there is no distance between them. They're, they're still one, they are still the same. 
And uh, this is what we call here as non-locality. I don't know if this is expression is also used in, in English. So non-locality, which means there is no space. Of course, here in our 3D world, we have space. But when we take a look at our reality from a quantum point of view, we can see, no, there's no space. And the same is with time. Um, there is this experiment with the quantum eraser, for example. Uh, you have these two entangled photons and the first photon um, will land on a detection screen. And it could be seen in two versions. It could be seen as a bar or as an interference pattern. And it depends on what happens to the second photon. And the second photon is still on its path and it could lead to path uh, it could go path A or path B. And on this path, there are several um, random processes involved. So we don't know where the photon is going, to path A or to path B. But the first photon already knows in advance what will happen with the second photon. And this leads to just one conclusion. There is no time. It happens at the same time. And it's just some kind of an illusion for us here in our 3 or 4D world that we have space and time. And this is for me the most important thing that we can achieve with quantum mechanics. Well, you seem to be implying that the spiritual world is a world beyond space and time completely. And, and that is, one might say, the home of, of our soul or of our spirit. Yes, absolutely. Because in in a lot of messages we have received, or the mediums have received in our study, there were messages about the future, for example. Not, not 100% has become true, but, but a lot of these messages have become true, which shows that somehow in a spiritual world we have, as a soul, the, the possibility to take a look into our future. Maybe because there is no future, because everything happens at the same time. I think this might be a reality that we humans are not able to understand. I, I cannot imagine how it would be to see everything at just one moment. And I think we humans, we are not able to understand this reality. Richard Buck was a uh, physician around the turn of the century in Canada, as I recall, who wrote the book Cosmic Consciousness, describing a particular state of consciousness in which he said he, he could see everything at once, uh, all 360 degrees uh, at, at the same time. And, and he implied that this is a, a state of consciousness people enter into from time to time. Uh, one could call it a mystical state in, in which one is suddenly aware of this uh, timelessness. And of course, it's almost impossible to put such an experience back into human language because our language is so clearly predicated upon time and space. And especially people who have had a near-death experience also report of similar things. For example, in their live reviews, they could jump to several points in their life on and, and they and they say or they report of that they um that they could understand every person that was involved in that situation just at, at one moment so they didn't have to switch from from one person to another they said i experienced or i could hear all that or feel their feelings at once it seems that as a soul we are not any longer bound to our body limitations and we're able to 
to experience and, and to perceive much more than we can do right now as, as a human being. One of the major arguments in your book is about the theory of evolution according to Darwin and, and the followers of Darwin who have tried to uh, interpret uh, evolution as uh, strictly a, a material phenomenon uh, that evolutionary changes are uh, caused at random and it's simply a, a question of survival of the fittest, which random mutations uh, are, are going to allow for survival and and so on and you take issue with that and it's interesting to me that Darwin's partner Alfred Russell Wallace who was is the co-discoverer of the theory of evolution also took issue with that materialistic approach and was a strong advocate for the spiritualist tradition yes and you know what this morning i watched a video on youtube with Ricky Gervais and uh, as far as I know, he's a British actor and, and comedian, and he belongs to Team Darwin. I would I would call it Team Darwin. He always uh, speaks about Darwinian uh, Darwin's theory and and the evolution, and he is against spiritual ideas. And in this video, he said, uh, just a few days ago, there was this man who said to me, "For twenty years, I have been going to the same zoo." And uh, I was watching the apes, and after 20 years, the apes are still the apes, so they have not become a human being. And uh, Ricky Gervais answered, um, yeah, you have to see it in a long period of time. So we have millions of years, and there are all these very, very tiny, um, uh, tiny changes, and uh, every little uh, change leads to a better, uh, better animal or a better... Uh, um, a population. So you need small changes and a long period of time. That's what he said. But I think um, there are a lot of good counter arguments for that. And I'd like to give you maybe one or two. The first that I have in mind right now is uh, a study uh, which started in 1988 um, by Professor Richard Lensky at the, I think, Michigan State University. And what did he do? He, he, is, um, um, he is also in team evolution. He wanted to show that there is evolution in, in animals and in plants. And he started with E. coli bacteria. And he wanted to show that after a lot of generations, a lot of, after a lot of populations, he could show that there is some kind of a change, that we have created new genetic material and there is some kind of uh, a new feature, a new anatomy or something like that, that we can see in these uh, bacteria. And now in the year 2023, we have almost 80,000 generations of this bacteria. Um, I think uh, I have... Uh, looked on the homepage, it's currently uh, 78,000, so almost 80,000 generations. This could be compared to over a million years of human evolution. So I think maybe just some small, some small uh, adaption or change must be seen. But the only thing that we can see here is that we have some kind of devolution. So what is devolution? Devolution stands for that we have lost genetic code, that we have lost genetic information. There is 
uh, not a single bacteria cell in all this uh, 80,000 generations um, who has evolved, who has uh, uh, received a new, a new uh, genetic information to form a new anatomical part or something like that. We only have devolution. And when you Google it, you will find papers where they claim we have proof for evolution. But what happened? And I always compare it to uh, a car. Just imagine the bacterium is a car. And now we have a mutation and you lose the body. So the car has lost its body, so it has lost its weight. And when you um, have uh, driven 100 kilometers, for example, you would need 20 liters um, petrol. But now you have lost weight and you only need 10 liters per 100 kilometers. So the car is now more efficient than before. But not because there was a new feature, because it has lost a feature. It, is, it has become more efficient. And that's the argument. That's what they say. But this is not evolution. Evolution means that we are creative, that we have new genetic material, which leads to new functionality. But after eight, almost 80,000 generations, we can see in this study, uh, there is no evolution. No, not at all. Or another idea is because uh, evolutionists always talk about these tiny little changes. And I think that intelligent design here is a very good answer. I know that intelligent design, especially here in Germany, but I'm pretty sure it's the same in the United States, is always combined with creationism or with Christians. And uh, a lot of scientists say it's just another try to convince the people that there is a God or that there is Jesus or something like that. But it's not like that. I think intelligent design is uh, purely scientific. And I can say that because I'm not a Christian. I do not belong to any religion. Or I would say I belong to the religion of uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. He just said recently or a few years ago, the only true religion is to have a good heart. And I would say, yes, I belong to that religion and to, to uh, good arguments. I think I'm searching for the truth and I'm searching for good arguments. And what does intelligent design say? I think the most important term here is the irreducible complexity. So Darwinists always say we have these tiny little changes and the system gets better and better and better. But sometimes in biology, you find systems that have to be designed you can't explain it by uh, a tiny little steps. For example, the bacterial flagellum, or what I always use is, uh, to make it a little bit easier, um, a mechanical old watch. Just imagine you have an old watch, an empty case, and we have our first mutation. So we place our first cogwheel in it. Does the, the watch now work better than before? No, it doesn't work at all. Now we have further mutation. We put in the second and the third cogwheel, maybe some mechanical springs. Does the watch work any better right now? No, it doesn't work at all. Only then, only then when you place the last cogwheel, suddenly the whole watch starts to work. And I think, and this is inference to the best explanation from my point of view, that this 
has to be planned, that you have to have some kind of a design. So a creative mind to plan this, because it's not like that with every little change, the system gets better and better and better over millions of years. No, sometimes you don't have an advantage when a new part comes uh, inside of your case. Only the last part makes it complete. So when we have complexity and when we have a specific design, I would say the origin must be, must be a creative mind. This is the much better explanation than a lot of time and coincidence. Bacteria seem to be particularly adept at developing resistance to, you know, the various antibacterial drugs that are uh, put out on, on the market. They develop resistance very quickly. So it does seem that they are uh, able to uh, develop uh, adaptations. Yes, yes. And that's precisely the correct word for that adaptation. And I distinguish between microevolution and macroevolution. And microevolution, that's exactly what you are talking about, adaptation. Or for example, the finches, the Darwinian finches, very famous example. Uh, they are still finches at the end, or the bacterial a bacterium is still a bacterium. But when the bacterium becomes a frog, this is something totally different. So there is some kind of a frontier between micro and macro evolution. It's not happening that at a certain point, a bacterium suddenly evolves that kind that it suddenly isn't a bacterium anymore. So it's very important from my point of view to distinguish between adaptation. Yes, of course, there is adaptation and a change, but just to a certain level. You can't cross this border uh, so that we have a complete new uh, species. I agree with you, frankly, that there are lots of weaknesses in the theory of evolution uh, that get covered up because uh, in general, biological scientists uh, start with the uh, assumption of kind of a Newtonian uh, model of the physical world and, and th everything else they say has to fit that model. If they started out with a different metaphysics, they would look at the data very differently. But it seems to me that however you look at biological evolution, the question of human survival it may be a separate question. It may be compatible with many different versions of the origin of life. You know what I think is the most important part when we're talking about evolution and origin of life is the origin of information. At first, I thought it is uh, the medical specialist in me who is, uh, who is important for writing my book. But in the end, I found out it is the computer professor, the, the specialist for IT. So where does the information come from? And we all do agree, scientists and esotericists, that in our DNA, there is complex information. So it is a code. We have complex information. Where does it come from? And I, I would say when we take a look at current processes, my, uh, for example, we, we see a song or we hear a melody or we have a radio signal or a, a software and we trace the route back to its origin. We never find a material process we always find a creative mind. I mean, I'm, I'm a professor for computer science and I'm teaching programming languages and algorithms and things like that. And 
I just imagined the situation when I would go to my students and, and uh, I would say to them, now please just type randomly on your keyboard. Close your eyes, type randomly on your keyboard. Just do it all day long. And in the evening, just take a look what the compiler would understand. Compiler is a software that translates the software to machine code. And uh, then again, as you have to start all over, just close your eyes, type randomly on your keyboard. You just have to do it long enough. And someday you will have a wonderful operating system or a 3D flight simulation software or a jump and run action game. And what would the students say to me? They would say, hey, Lazar is crazy. He has lost his mind. But when a biology professor would say to his students exactly the same, exactly the same about the essence of information, everyone would say, hey, he is he's, uh, very clever, he's a smart professor, he's a very good reputation. But I think... Um, you can't distinguish between information in biology and information in IT. No, in general, we're talking about the general essence of information. And the origin of information is never a material process. It is not time. It is always some kind of uh, a creative mind. And this is why I think that uh, information is most important when we are talking about origin of life and evolution of, of, of species. According to the materialists, the uh, human being is just a sophisticated machine, and which seems to imply there it has no soul. Uh, I had a mentor, Arthur M. Young, who was the inventor of the helicopter, the first commercially licensed helicopter, the Bell helicopter, and and he used to say there never was a machine that didn't have a purpose. Every machine uh, has a designer and a purpose that is given to it by the creator. So uh, it's funny how that very metaphor of the machine, which seems to be the archetype of a materialistic viewpoint, actually implies something very different. Yeah, I totally agree. Absolutely. That's, that's right. And just a few minutes ago, you have been talking about a biogenesis. So here we, we have the same hurdles, I think, because um, we have a, a very good model, a good explanation for how, how life started, that we have the primordial soup. And in this primordial soup, four billion years, uh, billion years ago, um, there were the first, first molecules in this primordial soup and they connected um, and uh, uh, they connected to amino acids and the amino acids connected to proteins and, and so on. So this is one building block of life. That's what they say. And it is now 70 years ago that there was this Yuri Miller experiment. I don't know if you're aware of it. Very famous experiment. Uh, you can find it in every biology textbook in the world. And it is still somehow used as the proof for the origin of life. And what did they do? Well, we had some sort of glass flasks. Do you call them glass flasks? Connected glass flasks. And there were uh, anorganic gases in it. There was water, water, steam. We had uh, uh, heat. We had lighting to, to simulate an early earth. And after a while, there was this primordial soup on the bottom of the system. And they found amino acids in it. We have 20 proteinogenic amino acids. 
and they found, I think, 13 of them. And then they said, okay, this is the starting point for life. We, we have solved the riddle. We have the solution. Here's the starting point for life. But an amino acid has nothing to do with life. It's a very, very long path until something comes alive. And especially, I think it is the largest hurdle, the biggest problem that they found so-called racemates in it. So what is a racemate? What is homochirality? I think this is very, very important. And you, you will not find it in the textbooks, but it is very important. Uh, what is homochirality? Well, all chemical molecules can come in a left and a right version, some kind of a mirror version. We have the L and the D configuration. So an amino acid, uh, which has functionality in biology is always the L version. And it only works when you solely have the L version. So if the D version is also there, it doesn't work anymore. And when there is this mixture, we call it erasermate. And what did they found in the Uri Miller experiment? In the last 70 years, in every Uri Miller experiment, they always found racemates. But nature, uh, nature always uses only the L version. How did nature solve this problem? We don't know. We are clueless. We are absolutely clueless. And what did, do scientists now do? Somehow they check it, say, yes, we found the amino acids. They did. But in the next step of their uh, scientific approach and in, in their research, they do not use this primordial soup. They do not use this racemid. They throw it away. They go into an online shop and they sell the L version. They go to an online shop and sell the L version. Where do they have the L version from where, uh, the persons who sell it? They have it from nature. So it's really very complicated to, to, uh, uh, to get the L version. And I think this is not fair. This is not fair. I think scientists should use exactly the same way that the early Earth must have taken. So you have to use this primordial soup with the racemate in it. And I think this is one of the biggest hurdles we have. We have no idea where homochirality came from. If you're already uh, assuming a materialistic metaphysics, then anytime there's a discrepancy like this, you naturally assume sooner or later, we using uh, material science, we will resolve the problem. Uh, on the other hand, people point out to all of these gaps in our theory, and many of them would say, uh, because there are scientists who are wedded to a biblical interpretation of things, that every time there is a gap, that's a proof of God. And then the philosophers say, well, you, you can't argue for what they call the God of the gaps, that every time there's a gap in our knowledge, it doesn't mean uh, that it's proof of God, but you seem to be suggesting, Oliver, if, if I understand you correctly, that you're not arguing for the proof of God, but you are saying that we need a different metaphysics. Yes, and I think it's not correct to search for gaps and to say this is uh, the reason why there is a God. Uh, what I want to show and why I criticize all these theories is that there are a lot of question marks. And somehow our, our civilization and the layperson takes it for granted or as a matter of course that we have um, an explanation for that. And when I take a look at our scientists, they always say, 
we know how life began. No, we do not know. And I think it is time to, um, um, it's time to, to see that uh, we have uh, insurmountable hurdles here. And I think it is fair when we tell our students uh, that there are other models, that there are other theories, that there are hurdles. And I'm kind of angry. I'm angry that not a single professor in my own studies had shown me that there are alternatives. They, they always say here, this is the explanation, uh, this is how life uh, began, then we have evolution, and that's clear. This is safe. We know it is like this, but we do not know. And I think now is the time to show people that um, all these theories stand on very shaky ground. You've cited in your book many scientists who, who would say that uh, materialistic metaphysics is the equivalence of, of science. So that they would say science tells us that there is no life after death. And, and yet that's not a scientific statement at all. They are equating materialistic metaphysics with science, and uh, they're two different things. Metaphysics and science are not at all the same. They do not allow a divine foot in the door, for example. This was one quotation. Um, because um, when we have some kind of a gap, it might be just a question of time until scientists find a solution for that. And I would agree, of course, this is, this is okay when we say, yes, we need time to, to figure it out. But I think it is also okay to say um, that some kind of a, an intelligent designer might be as well a good explanation. So it all should be on the plate. And I think it is wrong to, to exclude um, uh, spiritual uh, explanations. But that is what many people in the scientific community assume, that anything that rings of a uh, supernatural or spiritual or multidimensional explanation must be automatically excluded from discussion. These are taboo topics for the most part in, in the scientific community. And uh, in, in fact, one of my recent guests said, not only is it taboo, it's worse than taboo. These topics are completely unthinkable to uh, many top uh, uh, scientists. And as a result, it affects uh, funding of research projects. It means that 150 years of empirical data on survival after death gets marginalized so that many mainstream academics will tell their students that there is not a shred of evidence. It doesn't exist at all because, because it's inconsistent with their a priori beliefs. And additionally, I think a lot of scientists are afraid of losing their reputation and their jobs when they are talking about topics like that. So they remain quiet and they say, I belong to the materialistic worldview because they are afraid. And aged 66 or 67, so when uh, they do not have to work anymore, a lot of scientists open up to these topics. That's what I have found out. I mean, I have still, I don't know, 20 years of work above me, uh, in front of me. Um, 
this might be dangerous when I go into public and talk about these things. But my own spiritual experience was so intense that I'm not afraid of anything. That's why I'm talking about. I think it's too important to, uh, for me to, to just be quiet. And when I think of Stephen Meyer, for example, he's from Discovery, uh, Discovery Institute. Or when I think of Michael Behe, Professor Michael Behe, who has written Darwin's Black Box, a very successful book, or Professor James Tour. They all believe in God and they go to public and they say, I belong to Team Jesus, to Team Christ, uh, Christians. I think this makes it very difficult for, for them to be understood by other scientists because the moment they found out, hey, they just want to prove their God, no matter what they say, it can't be true. And I think um, this is not fair because they really have very good arguments. Just take a look at their arguments. Don't, uh, we, we shouldn't judge a person just because of their religion. It's just because of the quality of the argument, I think. You seem to be suggesting when you talk about intelligent design, it, it implies that there is a designer. Yes, but who is the designer? It might be a god, maybe, maybe it's a spiritual world, or what Rupert Sheldrake always talks about is… Uh, morphogenetic field. Morph morph morphogenetic field, right. So, there are other explanations that, that doesn't mean there has to be this one god, so there are other explanations. But I think it is obvious there is a design, but I don't know who the designer exactly is. The, the materialists tend to think that anybody who is arguing for a, a philosophical deity that uh, may be the uh, ultimate designer of things, that, that that's the equivalent of arguing for a biblical interpretation of God. And there are other interpretations of the divine besides those that appear in the uh, Western religions. Yes, and I think this is not fair because when you really take a closer look at the arguments, you find out it's really a very, they have really very good arguments. And I think this is the most important part. And as I can tell you from my own experience, very often when there are skeptics who are, are writing emails to me, I can see in, in, in their writings that they haven't read my book. They do not know about my theories. They do not know about my arguments. Because they, I don't know, have, don't have the passion or, or don't have the time to read my book. They're not interested in my arguments. They just say uh, from the outset, no, this has to be wrong. This must be wrong. They're not interested in my arguments. And I think this is dangerous and this is false. Well, there are many people who would suggest that uh, materialistic science isn't real science at all. It's scientism. It's treating science like a religion. It's having a blind belief that sooner or later, using materialistic metaphysics will solve all of these unsolved problems. I, I think the phrase is sometimes called promissory materialism. I mean, the biggest obstacle for materialism, as far as I can tell, is the existence of consciousness itself, let alone life. Consciousness doesn't seem to be derivable from any combination of materialistic forces. And especially when we take a look at our current science about our brain, 
then we have to see have to see that there is of course activity in our brains when we for example love a person or when we solve mathematical problems of course our brain is involved and when we use an mi magnetic imaging is it correct do you call it like that in english okay and uh, you can see exactly the regions the limbic system for example is very active um, but i think it's grossly negligent to to assume that the origin of consciousness is exactly there and i always use a nice story to to explain this or what i feel about it for example when you hear a wonderful song on the radio what would such a scientist do a materialist scientist he would put this radio set into a tomograph into a uh, magnetic imaging and then he sees okay this part gets hot here we have a vibration so the song the origin of the song must be in this part but we all know no there is there is a radio station and behind the radio station there is a singer songwriter so there is a creative mind and i think our brain is not the origin of our consciousness is comparable to this radio set so consciousness is somewhere else and uh, uses our brain just like uh, um, a radio a radio set you uh, have written some poetry that appears in your book and i thought one of the poems was particularly striking in which you you point out that anybody who is a hardcore materialist if you want to argue with them you can ask them about love yes yes that's right what is the origin of love do you love uh, because a scientist always said when something is real you have to measure it the question is how can you measure love and ask ask the scientist do you love your wife do you love your children do you love your dog and i'm pretty sure he will answer yes and then ask him prove it prove that you love your wife and then he said i can't prove it i can't measure it yes but it is real it is there so we have realities we have a reality that you cannot measure and it is existent and we have to understand it well oliver lazar this has been a fascinating excursion into the realms of science and philosophy related to the afterlife once again i want to encourage our viewers to check out your book beyond matter it's an exciting, vibrant new approach to the whole question of life after death. And you write about it very forcefully and, and very elegantly and eloquently. So uh, I want to thank you once again for being with me and being with our audience. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And for those of you who are watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've 
just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.